Lord, we thank you for this morning, this chance to come together, um, uh, to worship you, to bring glory to you. Please open our eyes and our hearts uh, to uh, receive the truth found in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I am Bill. I'm one of the elders here at Church Next Door, about once a month-ish. Uh, Elders get a chance to give Scott a break, um, let him have the day off, so that is why you're seeing me today. So Scott has the, the day off today, sort of. Um, he's still right taking notes, I'm sure. Right? Um, <laughs> uh, today we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to go through verses 1 to 14. So starting off right at the beginning there. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Clearly watching for something for Jesus to do that they could nitpick and be like, oh, look at that. Jesus, we got you. Right? Um, and how exhausting, right? Have you known someone like that? That's just always finding that one little fault. Oh, great. Now what now? Right? What did I do this time? Right? And uh, it's to be around them <laughs> but how more often is it us that uh, are the ones doing the nitpicking right um, uh, and uh, of course right it's usually going to be the ones closest to us that uh, suffer that right maybe your spouse or if you're a parent your child or right, at work a co-worker or employee right picking on them, finding each little fault. And uh, yeah, that is not how we should be characterized. So I'll, I'll give you a, an easy one today. Don't be like the Pharisees, right? They got it wrong a lot. <coughs> and we're going to learn just how wrong they got it today. So some things to keep in mind, right? If you are that one who is uh, quick to find fault, I recommend the book of Ephesians. We're going to pull some verses out of there just for reminders for today. Right? In chapter 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? That is how our relationship with our spouse is to be characterized. What about parents? Right? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're a boss, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Right? Let our relationships be characterized by grace and love, not looking for every tiny little fault. And how often, too, do we do that to ourselves, not just to others, right? We start noticing, oh, 
there I go again. I made that, that fatal mistake again, right? And you start beating up on yourself. Man, I just can't do anything right. Man, oh, again, again. And in that situation too, we forget things like 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old is gone. You have been made new. You are a new creation in Christ. Right? Or in 1 John, where we read that the blood of Christ washes away all of our sins. We no longer stand condemned thanks to what Christ has done for us. This comes with a little caveat, right? The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. And when that happens, we need to be aware of that in our lives. Repent of that. And then move on, right? We move past that sin, we turn to the Holy Spirit for that strength, right, to avoid that temptation, right, we've been freed from that power of sin, but we're not to continue to beat ourselves up over it, right? <coughs> we've been made new in Christ. So, coming back to, right, the Pharisees here, they've made a claim that they are doing something that is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Except in Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you're looking for the cross-reference, it specifically <coughs> says that if you're walking through your neighbor's grain field, you can pluck the grains and eat them. Right? Just don't start harvesting your neighbor's field. But if you're hungry, eat something. Right? And that's what they're doing. So... We know Jesus knows Deuteronomy backwards and forwards. He uses it to right, uh, confront Satan when he's being tempted. S but that's not where Jesus goes here. He goes deeper. right? It's not just their argument that needs to be corrected. It's the hardness of their heart. And so that's right, Jesus' argument. Let's see that in verse 3. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So in 1 Samuel, right, um, we see David is fleeing from Saul. Right? Saul is trying to take his life, and he comes to the priest saying, hey, I'm hungry. Do you have any bread on hand um, uh, so we can eat and be sent on our way? And the priest says, sorry, the only thing we got right now is, you know, bread of the presence, the, the bread that is to be right before God. Um, uh, and the priest, the one whose right it was to eat that bread, then gives that bread to David and his men for them to eat. Now, in that passage, there's no commentary on it, no Right, mention of the morality of that decision, just that this is what happened. And we see right, Christ here pointing to this, claiming this interaction as an exception to one of the rules right, of uh, the Old Testament law, right, that this was an okay thing to happen. Right? No law was broken. And it points to a deeper issue here. Right? What does this whole interaction reveal to us about God? that God cares more about his people caring for their needs than he does his bread, right? He cares more about 
the needs of David in this instance, who's fleeing for his life, showing him mercy, than he does about the honor that is due him. And just in case we aren't convinced, right, that exceptions like this indeed are allowed in the Old Testament, we have another example. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? God's word specifically tells the priest to continue to offer sacrifices on the Sabbath, doing work on the Sabbath. An exception to the rule of not doing any work on the Sabbath. So indeed, exceptions are allowed and um, acceptable. And yet, right, the Pharisees have completely missed that point. So at this point, right, we could just stop. Their objections have been answered, right? But the heart of the matter still needs some dealing with. So we continue. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. A lot to unpack there. Let's take it one piece at a time. Something greater than the temple is here. We're talking about the temple of God. What could be more precious than the temple of God than God himself? Right? God made flesh is there in their presence, and he is indirectly telling them, that's who I am. Right? Not me. Right? Jesus is the great I am. Right? He is showing us I am God. So, they need to recognize that. Right? He has authority then, as he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. God is the one who ordained the Sabbath, who set it up. He has a right to do with it as he sees fit. Now, his argument there, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, again, is getting to the heart of the matter that the Pharisees have so missed the point of the law that it is to point them to him that they instead right, are nitpicking and pulling, hey, you're not to do this, right? what we consider to be work. <sighs> well, adherence to those outward laws, right? adherence to looking good on the outside, drives God crazy when you neglect right, what is good and what is right. And we see this, I see it pretty clearly here in Isaiah chapter 1. Right? Jesus quotes Hosea 6, summarized very well there, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But let's take a look. Right? Isaiah 1, we're going to read starting in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What is of primary importance? Is it that we make sure we attend church every Sunday and look our best? Is it that we show up to all the events? We've got a whole bunch coming up. Make sure you're at every single one. Or is it more important for us to show love and compassion when someone offends you instead to turn the other cheek and say, you know what, I'm going to forgive that and instead I'm going to show you what my Savior would do, how he would react in this situation. And through the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. All right. And again, he says, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And indeed, they were guiltless. Right? They broke no law. They merely broke the tradition of the elders. Right? The extra rules that the Pharisees had been placing on the people. Things that they thought were good. Right? We're going to you know, be so certain that we don't break God's law that we're going to add a bunch more rules to make sure we don't even come near that. Except in doing so, they actually break God's law many of the, like most of the time. As we see here, right, God's law says it's okay to pluck heads of grain and eat when you're hungry, and yet they are making that right, a, a grievous sin. Or when right, Jesus points out, you say you break the law of honoring your father and mother by saying whatever I would have given to you is devoted to God, right? You violate God's law, right, for your own traditions. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so, they have completely missed the point here. So what indeed is the Sabbath, Right? Let's go back. In Genesis 2, we see the establishment of the seventh day. God rested after all his works, blessing the seventh day. Exodus, Israel was then commanded to observe the Sabbath as a gift from God. It is holy to the Lord for refreshment of all the people, even the animals, the servants, the foreigners in the land to be a sign of the Lord's sanctification of his people, to be observed no matter the season, to not even cook upon pain of death, but primarily it's there for our good. In Mark 2, we get the verse, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This Sabbath is a shadow of the rest to come in Christ, which we enter into when we believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ, and we strive to enter in eternity. 
when we will finally rest from all of our labors. I could give you all the references there, but there's 13 of them, so if you want my notes later, just come ask. All right? <laughs> um, I do find it interesting, though, that in Exodus, right, it's where Sabbath is initially commanded. It's commanded six times in the book of Acts, or sorry, in Exodus. And then after those six times, he gives it a rest. Very fitting. <laughs> Pharisees, however, are not done with their corruption. So in verse 9, we see, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Right? They're trying to trap him. This question that they pose to him is answered with a question <coughs> by Jesus in Mark 3. And he asked them if it's lawful to do good or harm, to save life or to kill. And they're silent. They can't answer that question. That's the easiest question. Here's a nice little lowball question, right? Ask the littles and they can answer that one, right? Do you do good or bad? That's an easy one. You can do this, right? But their hearts are so hard, they can't even answer that because if they did admit it, they'd have to acknowledge the hardness of their heart, they'd have to acknowledge that what they were doing is wrong, <coughs> and that's just not something they can willingly let go of. Of course, Jesus gets frustrated with them at that response. Come on now, right? You see him in Mark 3 again, he's angered by this, he's grieved by the hardness of their hearts, that they are so focused on the what and the how, and this is right, what should be done that they forget the who. Who are we trying to bring glory to? God. Who are we talking to right now? A person in the image of God. Right? Instead, they choose to use a man who's had a crippled hand to try and make a point and trap Jesus. They don't care about him. They're not trying to help him. They just are using this guy as a means to an end. This question, too, they're not even looking for an answer. Right? They don't want an answer to this question because they get it and they don't change their mind. How often right, are we guilty of something like that? Right? If you encounter someone who doesn't believe, are you more concerned with setting up your argument and proving them wrong? Or are you more concerned with right, finding out where they're at, changing their heart, of showing them love and grace and mercy? For whatever reason, right, a non-believer set up those walls, maybe pain in their past, maybe who knows what, right? But if you're coming there to beat them with your knowledge, it's not going to change anyone's hearts. It's not going to change their mind. might just drive them further into right, digging their heels in. So instead, right, may we show some compassion 
that we are less concerned with our argument and more concerned with right, showing them the love of Christ. We still speak the truth, but we do so in love. Right? Our argument has already been made for us, and all we have to do is point people to it. Let's take a look what happens next. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? All right, we've all got sheep. Well, probably not us. Some of us maybe. But most of us probably not at this point. But most of them, yeah, we got a sheep. You reach out your hand, something the crippled guy <coughs> couldn't do at the time, and lift out that sheep, right? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? There's an exclamation point there for a reason. Come on now. Show some compassion to this guy. It is right to do good and not evil. To save life, not to kill. <sighs> so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Again, Jesus' compassion is about to shine through here. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. The man who was to be used by the Pharisees to further an argument, instead is shown attention and love and compassion from God. That he is finally set free on the Sabbath to stretch out his hand something they had all been doing all day long, right? You wake up in the morning, stretch out your hands. Something he couldn't do, right? You wake up, you, for, you reach for that coffee or your biblical equivalent of coffee at that time. I don't know if they had coffee, right? And now on the Sabbath, he is free from that physical burden and can now turn to the one who can set down all of his burdens, Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Their hypocrisy is fully laid bare. They didn't care about that man. They didn't care about their, their questions being answered. They don't even care about God's law. They care about being right and looking good. And Jesus is making a mess of it. Now, I'm sure they didn't think they were doing the wrong thing. They thought they were doing the right thing. But how? How could they possibly, right, have become so blinded? No one thinks they're the bad guy. Let's try and go through a hypothetical argument here and see if we can't understand maybe what they were thinking and how we could be in danger of thinking the same. All right. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 31, one of our passages on the Sabbath. So 31, starting in verse 12, and see what was on the mind of the Pharisees. And the Lord said to Moses, 
you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Sabbath is serious business, right? Well, immediately after this, we see this issue with the golden calf and how is that handled? I'm going to go to chapter 32, starting in verse 21 here. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Uh-huh. Um, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. All right? Sabbath is serious business. God, right, comes and takes out the people breaking God's law. That's what the Pharisees are doing, right? Where is the fault in this logic? Well, right, you can get so focused on those little details that you miss the big picture or even miss details like when Moses said, thus says the Lord God of Israel. He had a specific command for that specific instance from God. This is what we we're going to do. God didn't tell the Pharisees to go give Jesus a hard time for having a snack. Right? Also, Right? Does God allow for exceptions to things on the Sabbath? Yes, there are exceptions throughout. We saw those earlier. But let's get the full context here. What comes immediately after this in chapter 33? We go to verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The very name of God has in it right, his mercy and his grace, his compassion for those. We are really good at finding fault as humanity. That's like one of our specialties. Uh -huh. Sometimes right, we find it too easily in others, especially those closest to us, or in ourselves, beating ourselves up, being far too self-critical. 
in both cases, our focus is in entirely the wrong place. Right? We should be reflecting on God and his goodness, and only from that perspective do we then reflect on our own relationship. Do we need to leave the altar and go be reconciled to our brother? Read a little comment on that specifically. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is saying, right, but if you say to, to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment, who even insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. John Chrysostom, right, who lived about in the 300s, uh, had this to say, O goodness, O exceeding love of man, uh, he makes no account of the honor due unto himself for the sake of our love toward our neighbor, implying that not at all from any enmity nor out of any desire to punish had he uttered those former threatenings, but out of very tender affection for what can be milder than these sayings. Let my service, says he, be interrupted, that your love may continue, since this also is a sacrifice, your being reconciled to your brother. Right, God cares more right, about are being reconciled with our brothers about showing that <coughs> grace and mercy than he does about the honor due him. Right? You are there sacrificing to God, showing him the honor that he is due. But rather than require that in that moment, go first, be reconciled to your brother. Right? He is willing to lay aside his own rights for the sake of our reconciliation. He's willing to lay down even his own life for the sake of our reconciliation to God. So, let us, if we err, err on the side of grace. Dear Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for your <coughs> truth, your love and compassion for us all. Help us to turn to you, to be more like you, and to remember to have compassion and grace and mercy on those, on those closest to us, on those far from you. Help us to shine your light in this dark world. Lord, as we collect our tithes and offerings, let us do so from joyous hearts that have been transformed right, by you, that each day when we may be made more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.